What would happen if Jesus were in the White House? What would be our priorities as a nation if the values of the historical Jesus guided our budget and our actions and ethics? We've forgotten that the role of government is to support the people, right? And um, so we've ended up in this nation where we've utilized God to trump, (laughs) pun intended, (laughs) you know, social justice issues, the idea that we should be helping every person instead of saying, you know, figure it out for yourself, right? Ursuline College professor Gina Messina talks with me about her book, Jesus in the White House, Make Humanity Great Again. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website again is ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Today, we are going to mix politics and religion just because it's so much fun. My guest today, Gina Messina, has fun with it, too. She says it's important to base our politics on our ethics. Jesus was a person who stood up to a government that was oppressing an entire people and was willing to put his life on the line for what he believed in. Gina Messina is Associate Professor of Religion and Gender Studies at Ursuline College and the co-founder of Feminism and Religion. She's the author or editor of five books. We're going to talk about her latest book today, Jesus in the White House, Make Humanity Great Again. Welcome, Professor Messina. Thank you so much for having me, John. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I am glad you are here. Uh, Sister Simone Campbell uh, wrote a uh, an endorsement for your book, calling it a refreshing take on contemporary American struggles, a needed antidote for our current anguish. Uh, now, I had uh, Sister Simone on a couple of years ago. Uh, d- have you met her? I have. I have several times, um, and she is just an amazing woman, an amazing advocate, and um, grateful to know her. She's been a longtime activist in regards to uh, justice issues and, and, the, and the principles of her Catholic faith uh, within politics. And that's what you're bringing with your book as well, Jesus in the White House. You're, you're, you're obviously, people can have fun with that title, but you're talking about bringing contemporary Christian ethics to politics. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's so many questions we need to ask right now, um, especially considering um, the incredibly large Christian vote, Christian and Catholic vote uh, for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. So I think that we, um, as Catholics, Christians, um, really need to examine what our tradition is about and how that impacts our voting decisions. So did you write this book then uh, after the election? Was that uh, was the election of Trump uh, the inspiration for this? So um, actually, I had started this book long long before then. Um, And when I started it, I didn't even give Trump any consideration. Um, I didn't think he was going to be a contender at all. There were still, I think, 16 Republicans, um, you know, trying to get the nomination. And so I had started the book. um, with the idea that we needed to talk about social justice issues and um, how that relates to, um, you know, the fact that we bring Christianity into the political world an awful lot. Um, and then, for whatever reason, I fell behind a little bit, got off topic, um, and then Donald Trump won the election. And that pushed me to say, okay, I have to get this done. And I ended up reworking 
my title a little bit and um, changing my approach a little bit. And uh, so that was definitely the motivation to finish the book, for sure. You know, there certainly is in the popular mind, a Christianity to me has become uh, basically right-wing politics. I mean, I, I living here in Portland, um, which is probably the most non-religious city mm-hmm. uh, in the country, I mean, people just really disdain <laughs> Christianity. Those who come from, I, I, my, my show is on KBOO. There's no more suspicion of me than the fact that I'm a clergy person. Um, and, and, and I get that. I understand why that's the case, because Christianity has basically been bought out, hasn't it, by the media of, of the right-wing? Would you say, I mean, is there, am I speaking, over speaking that too much? And, and, and is your, and I'm, and I'm asking the question to you, is your work here to provide uh, another voice, a deeper voice, a uh, more consistent voice with the tradition about Jesus in regards to politics? Well, certainly. Um, and I think that is the conversation that we need today is who was Jesus? Um, what did Jesus stand for? What was his position? Um, and how does that relate to our lived situation today? And unfortunately, um, yes, right wing politics has really adopted the Christian tradition and has utilized that to formulate social policy um, and, uh, you know, focus campaigns that really do not connect with um, Jesus's movement at all, um, especially thinking about where we are today with the uh, Senate race in Alabama that's going to be, I think, voted on tomorrow with uh, Roy Moore. And people are saying that, you know, he's the godly candidate. Um, I'm not sure what God would say about that. Well, I actually think I do know what God would say about that. And I don't think that God would be feel really good about um, that being the slogan for Roy Moore's campaign right now. So but you, yes, you don't think God would endorse uh, Roy Moore? I do not. <laughs> I do not. Not at all. Not at all. All right. So someone might push back and say, well, God wouldn't endorse anyone. Um, what do you say that uh, Christianity should just kind of sidestep politics and think about heaven? Well, not necessarily. So, I mean, clearly we live in a secular nation, and I do find it problematic that our politicians very often bring God into the conversation. Um, Even in um, one of the very first Republican debates for the presidential uh, nomination back in, um, I think it was January 2016 in Cleveland, one of the questions was about God and what role does God play in your campaign? I don't think that should be coming into the conversation on the political stage. Of course not. However, um, you know, in our nation, very many of us identify with a particular religious tradition and certainly Christianity being one of the uh, most heavily. So um, people are talked an awful lot about their faith, really fueling their decisions on who they're going to vote for. And I've heard that a great deal about the 2016 election, and um, where I've heard a great deal that some people chose to vote for Donald Trump because they felt like he was the pro-life candidate. And abortion seems to be the driving issue for Christians and choosing how they vote. But we really, first of all, can, you know, should not be single issue voters. And if I can be so bold to say, um, Donald Trump to me was the anti-life candidate. And I think that we need a new definition of what life means because we get so wrapped up in particular issues. I think we're missing the big picture. Um, and so when we're thinking about our faith, I always say, who was Jesus? You know, he talked about love inclusion, liberation, and social justice. And then if we look at our social policies today, how do those principles fall in line with what we're choosing to vote for or what candidate we're choosing to vote for? Um, I think we need to give a lot more attention to that. Unfortunately, today, Christianity has become about showing up to church on Sunday and maybe donating a canned good here and there. But it's so much more than that, right? It's so much more than that. We miss the part of action that is really needed in the world. Gina Messina is my guest. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, uh, she is a professor of religion and gender studies at Ursuline College and co-founder of Feminism and Religion. Now, Ursuline College is a Catholic women's college. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the nuances and complexity uh, of Catholic women and feminism and politics. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. Yes, this is a big, a big topic, right? Um, I am so grateful to be at Ursuline College. It is a wonderful institution, and we're really uh, we're founded you know, by the Ursuline tradition, St. Angela Marici. Um, and a lot of people wonder how you can bring a feminist identity to a Catholic college, even though it's a women's college. Um, it seems confusing for a lot because sometimes we think feminist principles do not connect with Catholic teaching. And thinking um, particularly what you were talking about regarding abortion. Well, I think that's a piece of it, right? Um, I personally don't like to talk about abortion, and I'll tell you why. I think the topic we should be focusing on is reproductive justice. I think it is a much, much larger issue. Um, I certainly agree with Sister Joan Chittister when she said that often uh, we are pro-birth, not pro-life, and I think there's more conversations that we need to have. And I think that definitely connects with um, Catholicism and you know, being at a Catholic women's college. I think we need to talk about women's reproductive health. I think we need to talk about um, parental leave and equal pay and um, early childhood education and leadership opportunities for women. So all of these things I think are really critical. And if um, we could let go of some of the um, I think very divisive language that comes into the conversation sometimes, particularly the word abortion. Um, I think that we would see that there's so much more that we should be focused on. And that is a conversation I really appreciate having here at the college and with my students. Um, and learning, you know, that as you said, um, where you're at, it's very uh, anti-religious or non-religious. And I find that a lot of my students really struggle with their connection to faith because of certain teachings. Um, and I find that also once we are able to have a real dialogue about particular issues, it allows them to see that they really are able to claim their Catholic tradition or Christian faith. And at Ursuline College, you feel you have good academic freedom to promote a lot of things. You aren't restricted at all by doctrine or... Well, yes, I feel like I definitely have academic freedom. Um, I'm at a great institution and, you know, a key focus of our institution is social justice. And to me, feminism is about social justice. I always say that, um, you know, for me, feminism is about uprooting oppression and you cannot uproot one without uprooting all. And uh, that is certainly connected to the mission of social justice um, and thinking about who St. Angela Marici was and what her objectives were in founding. Well, talk, uh, the talk about her. Who is who was she? Yeah. Yes, yeah, St. Angela Marici founded the Ursuline tradition, and she was really um, an amazing woman who had, um, re you know, she had made statements that I think are still very relevant today. In fact, that we use a lot of her statements on our different uh, materials here at the college. And um, one of the things um, that was really important to St. Angela Marici that I find very significant was women's opportunities to control their own bodies and their own lives, um, in that she would encourage women uh, to remain virgins. And what that meant was don't get married, because if you're not married and you are a virgin, then you have control of yourself um, and you can make your own decisions in your life. And I think that's a very, very significant in relation to a lot of the conversations we're having today around women's issues. Gina Messina, my guest, she's the author of Jesus in the White House uh, and we're making humanity great again. I want to talk about that book, but I want to talk about, first of all, uh, a TED talk uh, that you gave um, in which you, you said something I thought was really powerful about feminism and religion. It's a feminist act to stay in a patriarchal tradition. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Unpack that because I, I certainly know uh, people from who, who've said that uh, that Christianity is hopelessly patriarchal. You have to move out of it. Uh, but you're you're finding no, we can stay in it. Can you talk a little bit about why that is the case? Absolutely. Well, I think oftentimes we think the only response is to walk away. And to do our own thing. Um, but I truly believe in my heart that at the foundation of the Catholic tradition, the Christian tradition, 
is is a, a feminist foundation, right? As I talked about these teachings of Jesus, um, I believe Jesus was very politically active in his time and was calling for um, community and calling for an end to marginalization and oppression. And of course, those are feminist values. Um, and there are definitely things within the tradition that can be reclaimed. Um, there's clearly no argument that there are patriarchal issues here, right? Um, and for some people, walking away is absolutely the right thing for them. And you know what? I I support anybody's decision um, to you know manage their faith or or whatever it may be in their own way. But for me, staying within the tradition is really critical because it gives me the opportunity to do work from the inside, right? To participate in these reclamations and to um, focus on the positive aspects of the tradition and look at how those enable us to utilize our faith to move forward to work for positive social change. And I really believe that so many women are doing that. Um, a colleague of mine, Solchiel Viso, she's my um, my partner on feminism and religion, we co-founded the site together, and we recently uh, just released a new book called Women, Religion, Revolution, um, which is the story of many women who are using their faith as the foundation to move forward such social justice movements. And I always say it's so critical for us to understand that even though sometimes it feels like I'm just one person, what can I really do? Um, we are all engaged in these micro level revolutions every day and every act counts. And so I think it's so critical for us to recognize that in ourselves. Well, I, yes, and uh, certainly the, the the Catholic Church is uh, what what the largest institution on the planet, and then uh, and then even my own little one, the Presbyterian one. Uh, so there's a there's a level in there. If you just if you step out, you kind of hand it over um, all of those resources to to patriarchy and to those who are not interested in hearing the voices of. So you, you have a you have a platform when you stay in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's really critical. Um, so again, referring to my partner, Solchi, she had uh, written a great piece for feminism or religion about change from within and change from the outside. Um, and talked about Mary Daly, um, who is mm -hmm. an amazing um, feminist, radical feminist, um, who's done incredible work. And, you know, her work has created to significant, you know, has worked towards significant change. Um, and so I think we need to honor the work of every feminist and all of the different ways that we're engaging. But we work to make change in different ways. And being on the inside is certainly one of those. Um, and I know that I have to share with you that I, I come from a very conservative Catholic family. And I'm often challenged. Um, my family often says to me, you're not Catholic. You're an Episcopal. You're Episcopalian. That's what they tell me. <laughs> and I say, no, I'm really Catholic. I am. I'm Catholic. And I really believe in the work that I'm doing. Um, and that's okay. People are going to challenge you, but plant your feet and believe in yourself and know that, you know, you're being guided in one way or another, right? So how uh, your own personal story, maybe a little bit, um, you mentioned in that TED talk that uh, it was college before you realized that um, God wasn't a man, or I'm not sure exactly, is that the words you use, but, but it was at that time that you had kind of a, a revelation. Was it, was it the higher education that helped you kind of uh, move along, discover your feminism, or was that still, was that early on? Well, no, that was definitely a huge part of it, and that was my quote. I thought God was a man until I went to college. And I find that so embarrassing to say now as this staunch feminist, um, but that was a huge part of me really starting to explore and ask questions. Um, I think, you know, a real, uh, my biggest life-changing moment for me in the Catholic Church, really honestly, was when I was 12. Um, and my parents divorced. And this was back in the 80s, um, where divorce was not very common. And um, I really remember feeling rejected from our church and our community because of that. And that felt very devastating to me. And I didn't know what to do with that. And it left me in a place to really struggle with my faith and with the tradition. Um, and then getting to college, 
it really gave me permission to ask questions and say, wait a second, you know, my family is not a bad family because my parents divorced or we're not good, you know, we shouldn't be marked with a scarlet letter. And, you know, in what other ways, um, you know, should I be asking questions about the treatment of certain persons in the church? Um, and that, yes, that really launched me on my journey. I'm speaking with Gina Messina. She's the author of Jesus in the White House, uh, Making Humanity, Make Humanity Great Again. So uh, in the book, you have a number of chapters uh, about um, Jesus. You have the real Jesus revealed, and you, you rely uh, a bit on the Jesus Seminar folks, uh, John Dominic Crossan. Okay, t- tell me about uh, uh, the historical Jesus for you. Um, for me, I definitely recognize the historical Jesus as a radical political activist. Um, you know, I know a lot of people take issue with the word radical. I I think the word radical is a very positive thing. Um, so I want to say that, but to Back me... Back to the root, right? The radical yes. is the basics, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And so Jesus was a person who stood up to a government that was oppressing an entire people and was willing to put his life on the line for what he believed in. And I say, who would ever do that today, right? It's such a rare thing. Well, it's particularly in the United States, right? Um, People will not put their life on the line for the things that they believe in, no. Um, It seems like, uh, you know, a crazy thing to even consider. But here, when we talk about the founder of the Christian tradition, um, he was a man who went out and said, you know, Caesar is not the God that we will bow to. Um, you know, it, it is unfair that the Roman Empire is taxing us in this way or taking away the fishing industry. And we need to band together and stand up for ourselves um, and claim a community where every person has the right to what he or she needs. Um, and that community included men and women and included um you know, uh, Jew or Gentile, every person. And Jesus really believed in that. And he stood for that until the day he died, um, never backing down. And to me, when we talk about Jesus dying for our sins, that's another statement that I've, I've often struggled with. I mean, to me, Jesus died because people were sinning all over the place. And he wanted to say, we are better than this. We are better than this, and we can be better people, and we can live in a world that is based in love. Now, Jesus challenged then uh, certainly the the imperial theology and the empire of Rome. Would you say that there's an American imperial theology and an American empire? Wow. Well, of course there is. (laughs) Of course there is. Um, And unfortunately, um, you know, uh, it's a very problematic theology that is taking us in a whole different direction. Um, I feel that we're very focused on nationalism, um, that we've missed the point of loving our neighbor, of hospitality, of welcoming the other. Um, And, you know, again, living in a community that cares for its people. Uh, We're so wrapped up in the question of small government or big government or who pays for what, we've forgotten that the role of government is to support the people, right? And um, so we've ended up in this nation where we've utilized God to trump, (laughs) pun intended, (laughs) you know, social justice issues, the idea that we should be helping every person instead of saying, you know, figure it out for yourself, right? Right, and Trump, in in one sense, uh, some theologians, I've been thinking of Mark Taylor at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, said that Trump is really just kind of the ugly face that we now see in America that has been already, for centuries of America, displayed, not centuries, decades, displayed through other to other countries. In other words, with Trump, the, the chickens have come home to roost. In, in other words, we see kind of a, uh, a mirror of this... All of the issues that you mention here, economic justice, health care, education, immigration, all uh, violence, um, an American empire with 800 bases across the country now has done that to other countries. And Trump is kind of reflecting that reality back to us. I, does that resonate at all with you or would you see that a different way? 
Oh, I think that that makes perfect sense. I mean, um, certainly the United States um, is guilty of participating in colonization and oppressing other nations. Um, and um, I have the book on my shelf, The Open Veins of Latin America. I haven't read it yet. Uh but it's on my shelf and I think it's an important book for all of us to read and think about the ways that the U S has been really involved in oppressing other nations and people around the world. And yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing this reflected now in our own nation. Um, and people are outraged and some people are not, and it's a frightening place to be. I'm John Chuck. I'm speaking with Gina Messina, author of Jesus in the White House, Make Humanity Great Again. More to come. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click donate. Feminist religious scholar Gina Messina is my guest. We're talking about her book, Jesus in the White House, Make Humanity Great Again. Yeah, you know... um, it was close, though. When we think of you, we, uh, Trump ended up getting elected, and basically, my wife and I were watching him last night on the World Wrestling Federation videos. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen those, but it, it's it's I, remarkable uh, to watch that. That's basically his character, and and it's and I understand how he got voted in. People like watching him do that kind of stuff, and uh, and but also Bernie almost got there too. I mean, it isn't like the whole country has moved to Trump. I mean, right. there is a solid core of people who are very concerned about economic justice and health care and marriage equality and, and, and the, the Black Lives Matter and climate change. Uh, I don't know what the percentages are. You can do polls or something, but it isn't so far that it's so awful. I mean, there is possibility. Do you find hope in that too? Oh, I certainly do. I certainly find hope in that. Um, But I think what's really interesting is that the population, the Bernie folks, right, those who feel the burn, um, they're generally agnostic, atheist, um, not spiritual, but not religious, not necessarily identifying with a religious tradition, which I find very interesting, because when we look at the Christian vote in 2016, 81% of evangelicals and 65% of Catholics voted for Donald Trump. So the question is, for me, and I think for many of us, is that why, why with a tradition founded on Catholic social teaching and, you know, these teachings of Jesus about inclusion and love, um, why are those persons the ones who are voting in a way that looks to, um, I guess, you know, for lack of a, of a better way to say this, for ways that are really breaking down um, a structure to support people, for you know, a system that isn't supporting social justice, for a system that isn't focused on healthcare for all or economic justice for all, um, and that is really, um, I think, something we should all be talking about, right? Where does our faith <laughs> land? Um, when we're talking about these political issues and who of us are focused on the greater community and who of us are participating in, um, a commu- uh, in individualism, right? I mean, the United States is very much a nation focused on individualism, and there definitely is that divide there. So, um, you know, we do know that, I mean, Hillary Clinton did have three million more votes than yes. Donald Trump. And yet, you know, he's still in office. Um, but I, I just, I have to tell you, it's just, I think many of me, many people feel the same way. We, you know, we uh, Christians largely elected a man to office 
who has openly talked about torturing people, um, sexually abusing women, you know, um, closing borders, kicking people out, taking away um, particular rights, and um, Christians largely floated for that. So he's the World Wrestling Federation guy. I mean, beating up on people, that's the way he does things. And that's the, and that's the, uh, <laughs> and, and, and that appealed to something. Um, so so that the question is, why did that appeal to people who are Christian? What, what is it about uh, that? Uh, have you got it? I, I'm not sure I quite, quite, I get it. I mean, because it has been people's Christianity um, that enabled them to say, right. this is, this is our man. And, and right. these politics are our politics. What has been taught in Christianity, uh, just a kind of a basics thing, that would make people make that call? Well, I think this is the huge problem in our nation. First of all, um, our education system is flawed. And critical thinking is no longer, I feel like, at the foundation of our education system. So that, you know... Our, our newest uh, populations are coming to vote um, without really understanding what it means to think critically. Secondly, religious education um, really stops at a very young age. Uh, you know, most people learn about their religious tradition from going to church on Sunday. Maybe they've gone to Sunday school. Um, but having a real strong knowledge, uh, a, a foundational knowledge of one's tradition, you don't get that in grade school, right? We don't teach it in the education system. Of course, we don't. We should not teach faith-based education in the public school system, although I really appreciate Stephen Prothero's argument um, for um, religious uh, literacy. Mm -hmm. but, um, but we just don't understand these things. And so when it comes time um, for us to really apply our faith, I think many of us don't understand what the foundation of our faith is. You know, we have these basic ideas. You go to church on Sunday, you listen to what your pastor says, and you follow that. You grow up in a conservative family, and you listen to your parents, and you follow that. Um, and many times people are not thinking on their own to make their own decisions, or they get caught up in the single issue of abortion, of same-sex marriage, um, and say, well, I have to vote this way because this is what's most important to me at this time. Yeah, and there's a, a, an authoritarian appeal that Trump has uh, that, was an, that is an, an appeal that, that goes to a certain religious sensibility of just simply believing what the authority figure says. Absolutely. I mean, certainly um, when we think about religion, um, many of uh, those who followed the Christian tradition think of God as being a wrathful God, right? Um, God is an authoritarian figure and you listen to God and you do what God says or else, right? Um, and to have someone in a position of power in the United States, some think reflects that kind of image. Um, however, I think that image of God is very, very flawed um, myself. Uh, so I, I often say, well, not often, I always say, and for me, God is about love, right? God is about love. And if, um, you know, we make mistakes, God is forgiving. Um, and that we should understand God as um, a loving being that is here for us. Um, not an author authoritarian figure, not as, um, you know, Rosemary Radford Ruther talks about, you know, this image of God as a mother and father, which really sounds like, um, you know, this overbearing parent that doesn't want his or her children to grow up. I don't think that's who God is. Um, I also do not think God is oppressive in any way. And um, I often say that, you know, if God truly calls us to oppress others, that's not a God I want to worship. When you, you bring up the question of God, and, and I want to talk to you about um, atheism and those who have, have left religion, how, how do you talk to your students about 
this transition that's happening very quickly of, of people losing their religion, especially young people, and, and finding it oftentimes it's a social issue that gets them going and then they realize the whole stack of cards falls away. Is, is there a way to, again, how, how do you go about finding something in your tradition that can keep you there? Sure. Well, you know, I talk to my students about a lot of different things, uh, depending on the classes I'm teaching or the questions that come up. And again, for me, God is about love. And I think that, you know, we see a lot of um, problematic texts throughout the Bible, right? Um, But I also talk about the idea that if we look at the Bible and an overarching theme, we find an overarching theme of liberation. And I believe that God is about liberation. I believe God is a liberator, Um, not a wrathful God, not an angry God. Um, That is not my understanding of who God is. And I think that we need to find different ways to connect with God um, that makes sense for us because the old white man reaching out to Adam in, you know, Michelangelo's ceiling, that doesn't work for most of us, right? It just does not work for us. And so what is the image that does work for you and how can you hold on to that? So, um, you know, some of my students talk about envisioning God as, um, you know, uh, their mother or their father, right? Or a friend. Um, Sally McVeigh talks about, you know, can we understand God as our friend? And what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, and I think we need to find that image that makes sense for us um, so that we can um, feel a stronger relationship with the divine. I think we need to get away from language that we find problematic, like our father, and um, which, again, led me to think God was a man for 20 plus years and work through that for ourselves. But again, for me, and I say this, as I just said before, what kind of God do you want to worship? A God that oppresses people and says you are not good enough and you deserve, you know, to, to live a life of suffering. That is no God I want to suffer, or, I, that I want to worship, right? That's not a God that I, that I want to be um, in relationship with. To me, my God suffers with me, stands with me, um, and loves me no matter what I do. Right. And that's what works for me. And I think that my students find that very appealing. I'm speaking with Gina Messina. She is the she's a professor at Ursuline College in gender studies and associate professor of religion and gender studies at Ursuline College uh, outside of Cleveland. Her book uh, just out. Jesus in the White House, uh, Make Humanity Great Again. You have Black Lives Matter in in one of your chapters, and you talk uh, very eloquently about uh, the importance of the ethics of Christianity in the present. And certainly Black Lives Matter would be a central part of that. Is there a a challenge with feminism and and, and women of color? And and can you talk a little bit about that? And I'm going to just give you an illustration. We had the Women's March uh, here in Portland, about 100,000 people. Uh, The cops here all had pink hats, no no arrests, right? Uh, The next week they had, you know, a demonstration, mostly African-Americans, the police, the cops come out in riot gear. Um, how, how, how have you found that struggle between feminism and, and feminism for women of color? Tell me about that a little bit. Well, I think it's really problematic, um, that often when we talk about feminism, people assume it means white feminism, right? Um, and we need to really think about how we use language and think about how, um, Our efforts represent every person rather than just a small group. Um, And so I'm constantly talking about intersectionality, which really focuses on understanding the different social positions of different people based on race, ethnicity, culture, religion, sexuality, um, age, and so on and so forth. So um, my position as a white woman who is a college professor, you know, is a very privileged position and um, is very different um, from, you know, other women that I engage with in my community. And I think that we need to acknowledge um, the baggage that we carry as a society when it comes to racism. Um so often, I mean, I hear people say, like, you know, 
cops, uh, you know, these cops are all racist and they just want to kill, um, you know, young African-American males. And I think really what the issue is, is that we live in a society that has so much baggage that we are all preconditioned to fear certain things. And sadly, an African-American male in a hoodie is something that people fear and react irrationally to. And how do we get past that? That is a critical question. It is certainly a question of feminism. Um, and, you know, to me, feminist dialogue should include every person and we should not have to um, make separations based on one's um, race uh, or other um, forms of identity. But um, again, disappointingly, we recognize the feminist movement as often as a white feminist movement um, because of the historical foundation of the movement. And um, the question is, how do we continue to move forward? I'd like to believe we are in a fourth wave of feminism that honors intersectionality and recognizes the power of every voice rather than just one. Third, and I got to catch up, third and fourth waves. Yes. Yes. So um, we talk about the second wave of feminism really with, um, you know, Gloria Steinem. She's yeah. the face. She's the face of the second wave movement. And I love Gloria Steinem. She I always say she's the real deal. I've had the great honor of seeing her speak a few times and I'm always just overwhelmed by what an amazing woman she is. Um when we're thinking about third wave feminism, it's really a, you know, a movement to address colonialism and, and what it means to be in a post-colonial society, which is a critical movement. But I think, you know, bringing intersectionality into the conversation is really another step that adds on to that. And so a lot of people are talking about this being the fourth wave. Um, and so I, I think that we really need to shift the conversation. Um, and the conversation is shifting to, to discuss intersectionality, but in very small groups. And I feel like it really needs to be a much larger conversation that we can all get involved in and see why Gloria Steinem being the face of the movement in the second wave, you know, might have been a good thing for the time, but today, there isn't one face of the movement. There's many faces of many cultures, many races, religious traditions and identities. And that, I feel like, is where feminism is moving. Jesus in the White House, make humanity great again. Gina Messina is my guest. She's the author. You know, as I'm looking at the various chapters that you have, where there's economic justice, healthcare, education, immigration, gun control, marriage equality, women's rights, capital punishment, Black Lives Matter, and climate change. There's the there's the bunch of them. They are, in a sense, pieces and 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 a divisiveness too of people who are for marriage equality are not the same as those who are. Black Lives Matter or healthcare or education, that there, there is a division. There's something bigger, and I'm, I'm going to call it military industrial complex and finances that are, that are so huge that somehow benefit by dividing the people. And, and intersectionality may be a way to um, help get that movement back together again. I think, I think you said it very well. And yes, I think that um, when we're looking at these larger um, structures that are in place, these social structures that are oppressive, they do work to divide, right? Um, and create separation amongst the people because uh, what easier way to keep in a place of power, right? And so I think honoring um, intersectionality and recognizing the way each of our situations are different, Um and starting, instead of just focusing on how we are the same, which I think is a conversation that we get too involved in, let's celebrate our diversity. Let's celebrate the way we are different from each other and the different strengths that we bring and how those strengths come together to make up a really beautiful whole, right? Um, whole, not a whole, but, you know, as an entirety. Uh -huh. W-H, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, 
you know, I think that we get so wrapped up in this idea of saying, but look, we, we, we're all the same. We all bleed red yeah, or yeah. whatever. We, we, we are discounting the beauty in our differences. Um, and those are something that we should really delight in and celebrate. And um, I think intersectionality will help us to move in that direction. Those who vote against their own interests are, are also feeling a loss of something. I, I, I guess perhaps uh, an ideal or a vision of America that, that isn't theirs anymore. I talk about white Christians, uh, that somehow that there's something lost and they're identifying with that and they're identifying with the rhetoric that informs that uh, or that keeps pushing that. There's got to be a connection there that the losses that they're really feeling are connected to the losses in some ways that others are feeling. You know, I, I don't want to say we're the same, but somehow we have struggles that are similar, that, that hit all of us in different ways, but mm-hmm. are still, you know, and I'm trying to find a way to how to connect the group that whatever was so isolated that they ended up voting for this maniac. Yes, yes. Well, I think part of it, you know, I read J.D. Vance's book, um, Hillbilly Elegy, and mm. um I thought it was a it was a very interesting and well written book, and I think it identifies a lot of the struggles of the working white class and even uh, really the white class that are living in poverty and the struggle and feeling that their concerns are not being heard. So I appreciate the point that Vance made in his book about that, but. I also think, yes, we are engaging in somewhat of a similar struggle. I don't think that there's any person that doesn't experience some sort of oppression within our society. And I think that we can find common, common ground in some, you know, in some ways in those areas. But we need to be cautious to say, well, wait a second, my situation is just as bad as yours, because Oftentimes it isn't. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it isn't. We are very quick to make assumptions about persons that we don't know and that we don't fully understand situations. And I think rather than than making those judgments, we need to acknowledge that marginalization and oppression within our society is a very, very serious issue. And how do we move past that rather than trying to understand how our oppressions may be the same because really I don't think that they are. Yeah. What would you like people to take away most from this book? I wrote this book and my very good friend, Steve Maison, who is a, a Emmy award, a Emmy award winning comic. He's hilarious. And I love him. You know, he punched up the book with some jokes. So there is levity and it's not meant to be this very serious critique. I also really hope that people come to understand a little bit more about what the foundation of the tradition is and also how we can live this out in our daily lives, how we're involved, right? Again, we get really overwhelmed and feeling like we're carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders. And what do we do first? Every little thing that you do in your life matters and it counts. And so pick one thing and focus on that and move forward. Work for change on whatever it is that you feel manageable at the moment. And recognize that we ebb and flow, right? Um, You know, I am a mom to an eight-year-old daughter and um, I don't always get to be out, um, you know, at the rallies or, or, or volunteering or doing the things that I want to. But I know that I'm making a difference in my home in the way that I raise my daughter and the way that I talk to her and um, the way that she is learning to think about, you know, every person's position in society. So recognize our own abilities and also come to understand that when we're voting, The foundation of our tradition matters, and we need to take that seriously when we're casting that vote. I'm never, ever going to say that Hillary Clinton was the answer or even that Bernie Sanders was the answer, but I think with Donald Trump, we are in a very, very different place, Um, and I think a lot of people understand that. Gina Messina has been my guest. She's the author of Jesus in the White House, Make Humanity Great Again. Thanks for all your work, and thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much, John. It was a real pleasure. 
Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. You can hear Progressive Spirit every week on WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina, Kutztown University Radio, Kutztown, Pennsylvania, KCEI, Taos, New Mexico, KACR, Alameda, California, WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin, KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon, and KZ88, Kabul, Missouri. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck.